Hello, I'm Betsy Kim, and welcome to WNHH 103.5 FM's Law, Life, and Culture. Military veterans, it can be tough returning to civilian life. MOA, M-O-A-A, the Military Officers Association of America, posted a March 20th, 2017 article by Amanda Bainton, How to Stay Connected to the Military After You Leave. The first line of the article reads, it's no secret leaving active duty service and returning to civilian life has its challenges, some more predictable than others. At the top of her suggestions, she lists volunteer. Well, we have on the phone from Avon, Ohio, a very interesting guest, Kenneth Harbaugh, who is a Yale Law School graduate, class of 2008, currently is the president and COO of Team Rubicon Global, a nonprofit organization that provides veterans around the world the opportunities to serve others in the wake of disasters. Ken, welcome to Law, Life, and Culture. Great to be here, Betsy. Thanks for having me. Okay, not wanting to bury a big scoop, where you are hearing it is on WNHH 103.5 FM. You may also be listening to a future congressman. If you're not happy with the current House of Representatives, you'll want to stay tuned in because in addition to Ken's military service, work with veterans, and his writing a book, he's exploring a congressional run. More on that later. But first, back to our vets. I met Ken when he was visiting Yale Law School in late March to talk about Team Rubicon. Now, Ken graduated from Duke University, where he majored in biology and graduated Phi Beta Kappa and Summa Cum Laude. He then went to Officer Candidate School, and he served as a naval pilot before coming to New Haven to attend Yale. His wife, Anne-Marie, taught at Hill House High School in New Haven, and we are still one of her favorite cities. Before we get into Team Rubicon, let's hear a little bit more about you and your history. What motivated you with a biology degree from Duke to head for a military career? Great, great question. Um, and to be perfectly honest, it was the kind of decision that, that I made out of real, really uh, unadulterated, unadulterated patriotism. I remember a moment in... Um, it was probably New Zealand hitchhiking around after a summer abroad uh, studying marine biology and realizing that I had lived a pretty darn comfortable life and really done nothing to deserve it. My grandfather flew B-17s in World War II. My dad was a, a pilot in Vietnam. My brother was an F-16 pilot. And, you know, here I was um, thumbing my way around Tasmania and New Zealand. And as soon as I got back, this was junior year in college, I uh, signed up for, for the Navy. Wow. Can you tell us a little bit about where you served and your life as a naval pilot? Sure. Um, I joined in 96, so this was pre-9-11, and when I was looking at the array of opportunities before me, I knew I wanted to be a pilot because I, I wanted to do something that put me you know, as close to the front lines as I could be in peacetime. And I also knew that I wanted to fly the kind of airplane that had the kinds of missions that were really relevant in peacetime. My brother was a fighter pilot, and talking to him, it became clear that the vast majority of the time he spent in the Air Force was practicing. But the Navy has some planes that do some pretty 
real world missions round the clock, and one of them is called an EP3. It's an electronic warfare, warfare plane. And while I was in the Navy, I rose to the um, to the rank of electronic warfare aircraft commander, and was leading air crews and flying missions off of North Korea and Russia and China. Uh, and it, you know, was a pretty meaningful way to spend a Navy career, even before the country went to war. Of course, everything changed after 9-11, and everybody was, was, was very much on the front lines after that. But that's how I got into electronic warfare and, and what they call signals intelligence, flying this big surveillance plane. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the biggest honor for me, the most important part of it for me, was leading that air crew. The missions could be exciting, they were certainly rewarding, but the most rewarding part by far was being in charge of a plan of 24 people who depended on me literally for everything. Sure. Did you have combat duty as well? No. And I, I want to be very very careful there and very respectful. Uh, I think the VA considers me to be a combat vet uh, and technically I had combat missions. They call our crews combat reconnaissance air crews, but my war was fought at 30,000 feet and it was nothing, absolutely nothing like what the guys on the ground were going through. Uh, and you know that's where my where my sympathies lie when I think of a combat vet. I think of my buddies who were Marines or, or soldiers uh, in the dirt in the fight down on the ground. Sure. And you served in the military for nine years. What then motivated you to go to Yale Law School? You know, I had experienced what it's like on the front lines during wartime when policy is made far away by people who really have no appreciation in in many cases for the the effects of those policies for the impact those policies have on the places where we deploy our military and the men and women who are asked to carry those policies out um, like my air crews were and i wanted to understand how that should work, how it could work if we had a system, a Congress, um, uh, Washington, that, that actually worked, that, that functioned the way it should. And I thought a law degree was a pretty good way to get that education. And I had a two-week-old daughter at the time, and I, I wanted to be able to be a dad. And those two things, wanting to really understand the Constitution and how government could and should work if it wasn't so dysfunctional, uh, plus wanting to to be able to spend some quality time with Katie. Yale actually let me bring her to class, which is pretty, pretty extraordinary. Uh, we had a phenomenal time there. Uh, and that said, in some ways it was the toughest professional decision of my life because, you know, better soldiers and pilots than me went back. They went to Iraq, even with families. Uh, and I have the utmost respect for those who were able to do it. I, I just wasn't looking at my two-week-old daughter and facing that decision. I got out of the Navy and went back to law school. 
Yeah, but it's equally important, as you noted, that the decisions with people in combat that are decided by the government and other people you know, who do have law degrees take a look at what's going on in Syria now. It's incredibly important that there are other people with you know, skills besides reconnaissance or flying skills and you know, who have other uh, background planning skills as well. Was that in the back of your mind? You mean in, in choosing this path yeah, um, and through law school? Law, like in somehow still with, a, with an eye towards. Yeah. Um, it, it must have been somewhere there in the back of my mind. Really, it was a gut decision born from the frustration of serving in a military that, in way too many cases, was being managed and deployed by people who didn't understand the military. That's where the decision really came from. Okay. Now, yeah. Team Rubicon Global Meeting, you describe what it was like for you to go from the military to return to civilian life. Can you talk about that for our listeners now? Sure. And I should be really clear up front that I had it pretty good. When you look at the landing I enjoyed, Taking off the uniform and returning to civilian life, I had a great family support network. I had a career path through law school, and even then it was kind of tough. And I, and I, I call that out up front because compared to a lot of my buddies who didn't have all that, you know, they had it so much harder. And returning to civilian life can be a challenge on so many levels in terms of education and career and family I think the most fundamental challenge, though, is regaining that sense of purpose and community and identity, which we talk a lot about at Team Rubicon. Mm -hmm. When you take off the uniform and, and go back to civilian life, because we have an all-volunteer military. The vast majority of people who join, join out of a sense of, of duty or obligation and that sense of duty and obligation doesn't go away the second you take off the uniform. We are transitioning millions of people back into civilian life, people with incredible skills and incredible experiences that we should be repurposing. And, you know, the, the idea that, um, that we're not taking advantage of that is it's, it's really just kind of crazy. In okay. my case, I remember one epiphanous moment looking at, and anyone who served in the military will know what I'm referring to. I was looking at my DD-214. This is the form that summarizes your entire military career, two pages front and back. In my case, that represented nine years of my life. And there was an empty signature block. And I knew that the moment I signed that empty signature block, one phase of my life would be over and another phase would begin. Well, all good and well, except that Navy phase of my life had become my identity. And realizing that at that moment really hit me hard. Who am I going to be once I take the uniform off? That was a tough transition for me, and it's an especially tough transition for, for men and women um, who don't have the kind of soft... Yale landing that I did. For sure. 
But after graduating from Yale, you worked at a couple of nonprofits and worked as a consultant at McKinsey and Company. And I understand a fair number of Yale graduates joined McKinsey after graduation. But then you went to Team Rubicon. Where did you hear of Team Rubicon and why did you make this career choice? While I was in law school, I co-founded an organization in a lot of ways as a reaction to this frustration and this loss of, of purpose and identity that was called The Mission Continues. I founded it with a buddy of mine. And the idea was to give returning vets an opportunity to continue serving their communities and their country through community service. We created a fellowship program that in some cases placed these vets in community organizations where they could do work and gain skills and and regain that sense of mission. Uh, In other exceptional cases, we provided grants to veterans who had their own ideas for, um, for, for nonprofits to start or missions to renew their sense of purpose and commitment to their communities. And one of those grants that we gave was to a Marine who had uh, just come back from Haiti after the earthquake there that leveled Port-au-Prince in 2010. And this Marine and his buddy uh, and a handful of medics and doctors, uh, they had seen what was happening over their TV screens in Port-au-Prince in the hours after the earthquake, and, and they said to themselves, you know what, that looks a heck of a lot like what we just came back from, Iraq and Afghanistan. Maybe we could be helpful. Maybe we know a thing or two about operating in an environment like that, and maybe we should go, and they did. And that mission with those eight people became the first Team Rubicon mission. The organization didn't even have a name at the time. But Jake and Will, the two Marines, and a handful of medics and doctors went down to Port-au-Prince, and because of their cool-headedness under pressure, because of their experiences and skills learned the hard way in combat and their ability to, to lead teams to function in tough environments to solve problems with a bare minimum of resources. Within a couple of days, this small team was running the biggest hospital in Port-au-Prince. And what they learned down there was that not only did they have something to offer in an environment like that, but that as veterans, they were gaining something unquantifiable. They were regaining that sense of purpose and identity. Uh, and, you know, that's that's how I heard about him when, when Jake, one of those Marines, applied for uh, Mission Continues Fellowship. Um, we jumped at the chance. I'd been tracking them since the beginning, and I've officially joined the team in 2013 when they were on the verge of really expanding dramatically. And from those original eight deployers, they have since grown, we have since grown, to 45,000 veterans standing at the ready to deploy whenever and wherever disaster strikes. Okay. So can you explain the name of the company? What does Team Rubicon mean? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, um, I, it's an allusion, right, to the Rubicon of antiquity, that river in uh, ancient Rome, which Julius Caesar knew that if he crossed, there was no turning back. And it was actually in Haiti, the river dividing Dominican Republic and, and 
in Haiti that this team of eight had to make a decision about. Because everyone was telling them, you can't do anything in Haiti. It's beyond your ability to help. What do you guys know about disaster relief? And the river was kind of the the go no go point. They had flown into Dominican Republic and um, uh, were on the on the DR side of the river and made the decision to cross, realizing that once they were over, they were committed to this mission and there was no turning back. And the name Team Rubicon comes from that. Okay. So with Team Rubicon Global Operations, are those both humanitarian and natural disaster response missions? Because it certainly has a catchy tagline, disasters are our business, veterans are our passion. Disaster relief is the primary mission. And what we have learned tragically in the last year and a half or so is that we cannot just focus on natural disasters. We ran a clinic for about six months for Iraqi and Syrian refugees fleeing ISIS. And that is by no means a natural disaster, but it is one of the most profound disasters affecting the world today. And we felt like we had something not only that we could do, but that we needed to do. And veterans are ideally suited for that kind of thing. We ran this medical clinic in this refugee camp, and for six months we rotated former military medics and nurses and doctors um, and logisticians through this clinic, helping those victims of ISIS. So, yeah, we, I guess, earned our stripes in dealing with natural disasters, but there's no shortage, unfortunately, of man-made disasters as well. Yeah, okay. You know, Team Rubicon has trained, as you noted, over 45,000 veterans to deploy in emergency response situations around the world. What does the training involve? Are they pretty much... An important, yeah, a, a really important part of our approach to this is engaging our volunteers. You'll hear me use the word gray shirt. That, that's how we describe our Team Rubicon volunteers because when they go on these missions, they wear their iconic Team Rubicon gray shirt. And we keep the bar pretty low for domestic deployments. They have to understand the Team Rubicon culture, the values that we espouse and, and serve as ambassadors for in the field. We also train them in um, the basics of, I'm going to get a little bit jargony here, but incident command system. We want to make sure that downrange in the field we're speaking the exact same language, using the exact same terminology as the, the fire departments, the police departments, the emergency responders who we're often working alongside. So there is a real baseline of training it's and it's it's pretty easy to get through but then we have a, a pyramid of training on top of that which can you know take a ton of time if a volunteer is is so inclined they can go through heavy equipment training or chainsaw training or the higher level incident command courses but the ultimate goal is to give people an opportunity to participate in our operations, making sure that we abide by you know all of the the standards that 
that we set for the organization, but provide those rock star volunteers the opportunity to really excel and become experts in in their field within this disaster relief framework. Sure. Now, what are some other examples of assignments in addition to Haiti and some of the other um, incidents that you've described? What these forty five thousand men and women mm-hmm. have done. The vast majority of missions, that's how we refer to uh, our assignments, are in the U.S. They're domestic, responding to floods and tornadoes and hurricanes and, uh, and, and, and ice storms. I've responded in the U.S. just domestically, not counting my overseas operations to, to tornadoes uh, and, and floods. Uh, we've begun responding to wildfires as well. A couple summers ago was the worst wildfire season in recorded history in the U.S. Thousands of fires burning unchecked up and down the uh, the West Coast, most of them in Alaska. And the Bureau of Land Management came to us and said, we need help. We need manpower to fight these things. Do you have any resources? And we said, you bet. Uh, And very quickly, we trained hundreds of Team Rubicon members in wildland firefighting. So the the missions, the operations run the gamut. Um, And most of our deployments, we've done over 160 as an organization, are to disasters that you might never have seen in the news. These things that won't make the headlines nationally, but are really a traumatic experience for a community affected I remember deploying to the town of Longmont, Colorado, which I don't know if it made the headlines, but when you went through that community and saw houses moved off their foundations, a river that had shifted its course by 100 feet, leaving bridges that it had you know, once crossed it, now crossing dry land and a river 100 feet away cutting through the road, that's a pretty epic disaster for that community even if it's not making headlines. And those are the majority of our deployments. What do you do as president and COO? Do you still go on missions? I wish I could get on more of them. I make a point to get out at least a couple of times a year because for me, that's, well, I, you know, part of it's selfish. I like to get out with the gray shirts. I like to be serving alongside. And if I can get away with it, um, I'm just a strike team member. I'm not in a leadership position. I'm mucking out a house. Now, I did go back to school to get my um, medics um, certificate. I'm an EMT, so that when I deployed to some place like the medical clinic for the Iraqi and Syrian refugees, I can be useful there. But I, I know why you're asking, and the sad truth is I've spent way too much time stuck behind the desk. You know, at Yale Law School, the event where you presented, I also met Robert Johnson, the Connecticut State Administration Region 1 uh, Team Rubicon volunteer. And he was a passionate advocate of how, as a vet returning to civilian life, how much Team Rubicon returned a feeling of meaning and purpose to his life. Can you describe what Rob does and how Team Rubicon is relevant and needed in Connecticut? Well, Rob's, Rob's a great guy and I think an exemplar of how the whole gray shirt ethos and mentality works. 
he's there for his fellow gray shirts. He's there for the victims of disaster. Uh, and, and Rob does it all out of the goodness of his heart. The vast majority of those 45,000 gray shirt volunteers are just that. They're volunteers. They give up their time to, to serve with Team Rubicon. Some will save up vacation for a year so that they can go on a two-week deployment uh, with Team Rubicon. Now, we don't charge them a thing to do that. We get them there. We The only thing we guarantee them is an amazing experience helping others. Uh, in exchange, they give us their time and their talent. Uh, there is no, no buy-in. We see our gray shirts as an asset to the organization that we are lucky to have, not as a, a way to, to raise money for us. Um, one of the neat things about Rob's role in Connecticut and one of the ways he's really taken uh, his state and his region to an even greater position of relevance in Team Rubicon writ large is his building up of training capacity. So Connecticut is now training gray shirts in heavy equipment and other expertise areas and sending them all over the country. Uh, so Region 1 is sending, has some of our most experienced heavy equipment operators uh, and they're deploying down to Florida in the wake of uh, tornadoes or out west uh, to, to help respond to floods. Uh, Rob's been, you know, a real, um, a real driving force behind establishing Region One in Connecticut as, I guess, the training ground for, um, for Team Rubicon USA. Okay. You know, I, and of course, Connecticut. Sorry, go ahead, Betsy. Oh no, you go ahead. Yeah, well, Connecticut isn't immune from natural disasters either, but the epicenter of disasters is not the, the Northeast. I mean, Hurricane Sandy was, was a major response for Team Rubicon, but incidents like that are few and far between in the Northeast, whereas in Tornado Alley and in the Southeast, you know, we have a, a lot more activity, and with the wildfires out West, Connecticut has really taken its place as the training ground for, for many of the experts that we send to those places. Okay. You know, I also met up with Rick Lawson, who has also been on Law, Life, and Culture as the founder of the War Experience Project. He has since graduated, but was a Yale a student at Yale School of Public Health when we he was on the program. And Rick, I understand, is a Connecticut team Rubicon planning coordinator, and he too is very positive about volunteering for your organization. Can you describe the role of the Connecticut team Rubicon coordinators? We have a pretty deep bench of coordinators who are also volunteers, the vast majority of them, that do everything from planning disaster responses to planning volunteer engagements. And the volunteer engagements are especially important because they give our grace shirts in a state or a region the opportunity to learn together and work together and train together in advance of a disaster. Uh, and, you know, it might be something as simple and as easy as a, um, as a social event where, where we bring together gray shirts to 
just have fun and get to know each other and build that sense of camaraderie. Uh, or we put a lot of time and energy and effort into holding training events where we can bring these gray shirts together to, to, to learn how to use the, the tools that we deploy in the wake of a disaster from heavy equipment to the technology tools so that when it does happen, we're ready to go and the teams are trained because they work together. You are listening to WNHH 103.5 FM in New Haven on law, life, and culture. We're speaking with Ken Harbaugh, formal naval pilot, current president and COO of Team Rubicon Global, an international rescue organization that brings military veterans to help people in natural disasters and to offer humanitarian relief. And he also has some other plans which we'll discuss, including a run for Congress. But in addition to Kenneth Harbaugh's work on Team Rubicon, he is also a published author. Kenneth and his wife, Anne-Marie Kelly Harbaugh, recently published a book about parenting, Here Be Dragons. So, Ken, can you tell us about your book? Sure. This book came out of this idea that the work Anne-Marie and I have chosen to do has really, at times, taken us away from our, our kids and from the family, and that's hard. It's hard when being a parent is, is so important to me, um, and trying to find that balance between leading a life of purpose and adventure, let's be honest, and being there for your kids. And we decided that we had something to share on that, especially when we thought about how we were integrating that sense of purpose and adventure into our parenting, making sure that our kids grew up with that same idea that their lives should have meaning and that lives are richer when they're approached with a sense of adventure. So do you think this book is particularly geared toward military families and their special challenges that they face, for example, being away from their children? Well, it's, it's interesting you ask that because we've gotten a great reception from military families on the book tour when, when we've done events on military bases, but the vast majority of people buying it are, are not from military families and are not in military communities. I honestly think it's an issue for for parents everywhere. This yeah. idea, you know, I think it's yeah, it's so- really a societal thing when when we're told and we're taught that once you have kids, they become they have to become the focus of everything you do and they become your purpose and there's just so much pressure when you start a family to make the family the center of absolutely everything you do my wife and and I were married for for eight years before we had kids and so when when we started a family when when Katie came along you know we already had things we were committed to things we cared about deeply and this notion that we had to abandon all that because we now had a family didn't really sit right. And I think that's something that a lot of families deal with, especially with, um, with parents who, who have things they're passionate about, things they, they love, um, purpose-driven missions outside of the home. How do you balance that? with raising kids, I think they actually complement each other. Okay. I think the work I've done in, in the Philippines and with Team Rubicon, in a way, if I if I deal with it the right way, can actually make me a better parent to my to my kids. Yeah. 
And I think it also encompasses the sort of having it all, the struggles, though, with having that notion and trying to achieve that notion. But if one wanted to strive for it, is there one secret or tip from your book that you'd be willing to share? I think kids are tougher than we give them credit for. They understand more than we often let on. This isn't in the book, but Anne-Marie reminded me of a, a stat recently that parents now, mothers especially, working moms actually spend more time <laughs> with their kids now than they did uh, before most moms went back to work like in the 1950s, which is kind of crazy when when you think about it, um, that, uh, that we're giving kids so much of our time and attention, largely because of societal pressure, not because they are they're as fragile as as we want to think. And then the whole understanding thing, the the realization that Anne Marie and I have had that our kids are actually smarter than than we give them credit for. When I got back from the Philippines, that was a pretty tough Team Rubicon mission because we were dealing with a lot of pretty badly hurt people. There were something like 10,000 dead in the aftermath of Typhoon Haiyan, which, which struck uh, the Philippines. And, you know, we were dealing with a lot of injured people in the, in the 48 hours after that. And I was able to talk to Anne Marie about that pretty quickly. It took me a while to have the conversation with Katie. I just wanted her to understand in much more, um, like, kid-like terms why I go away and and why I do these kinds of things. And I told her one story in particular about a little girl her age that we we helped. Uh, And we were walking through the snow in our quaint little hometown in Northeast Ohio. And, you know, I, I got through the end of the story and on the way back, retracing our footsteps, I paused and I said, I, I just, I wanted you to hear that, Katie. I wanted you to understand why, why your dad goes away sometimes. And she, she stopped and, and sort of looked at me almost laughing and said, Dad, I know why you go away. I just knew that you needed to talk tonight. Um, so kids are, are far wiser sometimes than we give them credit for. Yeah. Now, and family issues are a big component of quality of life in America. So in a related segue, I think this can relate to your exploring a congressional run um, for the U.S. House of Representatives representing the 7th District in Ohio. Why are you running for Congress? Let me, let me be clear. <laughs> I'm... I am considering running for Congress. We are in the exploratory phase, and I really appreciate the the chance that we've had to talk about um, Team Rubicon because uh, that is still very much my focus right now. But to answer your question just briefly, I I think that we are desperate for representatives who can go to Washington and exercise some courage, can make the kinds of brave decisions that I didn't see happening when I was uh, in the military, that I don't see happening now, honestly. When I look at the crises afflicting my district, my neighbors, things like the opioid epidemic, Mm -hmm. which is gutting communities here, 
and Ohio leads the nation. And the Ohio summit almost leads Ohio. 3,000 people died in the state in 2015 from overdoses. And the Stark County morgue, uh, this, this little fact blows me away, um, which is in the district, just had to hire a freezer truck to handle the overflow. There are so many people dying from opioid uh, overdoses, overdoses in, in this district. And for some people in Congress right now, the solution to that is to slash addiction treatment. It's just crazy. There are life and death issues facing Ohioans, people in the Ohio 7th right now that could be addressed if Congress had the guts to make brave choices, and they they don't seem to. At the end of the day, that's why I'm running. Okay. Now, I know I kind of torn the tables on you because I invited you on the program to talk about Team Rubicon, and then I sort of flipped it to uh, Congress because I was just interested. So with that in mind, though, what would be your key issues as a representative, for example, vets in the military, or uh, you noted opioid addiction, some other types of like family issues as well? So I'm very much still in the listening phase, doing everything I can to get out into the district, to meet with constituents, to understand how things look from the trenches. And I'm, I'm learning a heck of a lot about the realities of, um, of dealing with an economy that seems to be in an ever-steepening downturn about, like I said, the opioid crisis, which is not, it's, it's touching everybody now, about the gutting of, uh, of public schools. Uh, there are immediate and serious issues that I do think have solutions if we can only work together in uh, a bipartisan way. I want to make sure that I'm not defining the key issues, and so I'm, I'm open to listening to, to my neighbors and to constituents throughout the district. And to that end, I'm putting a ton of miles on the car. I'm going to every meeting I can get to, the, the union folks and, um, and the, the teachers and, and the activists, and uh, just hearing what people are feeling on the ground. Sure. Now, I think with this last election and the various challenges to some of the executive orders, people across the country are seeing how much our representatives from all of the states represent national interests. How is your run to represent the 7th District, do you think, relevant to people beyond Ohio and here, for example, in New Haven? One of the most encouraging things that I have seen over the past, just the past few weeks, as I've been contemplating this run and hearing from others, is just how animated people are about politics now, about getting involved. I have heard from literally dozens of fellow veterans, military vets, who served their country, who fought for their country in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, and are coming home now and saying to themselves, you know what? I sacrificed a lot over there. I lost buddies over there because I believe in this country, and something doesn't feel right now, and I can do something about it here at home. 
And there is an energy that I don't think we have felt in a generation, an energy to do something, to, to bring out the best in America. Um, and so many people like me are channeling that into running for office, into stepping into the arena or crossing the Rubicon and, and actually announcing and making a bid. Uh, and it, it makes me so very proud, so very proud of the, the country I, I served and fought for, so very proud of my buddies in uniform who are taking on this, this new mission. I think 2018 is going to be an historic year. I really do. I think we're already seeing the kind of energy and excitement um, that, uh, that, that we haven't in years past, and I think it's going to reach a crescendo in 2018. Well, thank you very much, Ken Harbaugh, Team Rubicon Global President and COO, author of Here Be Dragons. And you heard it? Well, perhaps first on WNHH 103.5 FM, Law, Life, and Culture, candidate for the 7th District in Ohio as a representative. We enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you so much, Betsy. It was, uh, it was great fun. And to our listeners, thank you very much for joining us. I'm Betsy Kim.